0: there are certain concepts of that seem to be universally associated with the Christmas season they're ingrained in our holiday culture under the banner of Christmas spirit typically Uh, perhaps you've heard that phrase used a number of times already um, in just the last couple of weeks and they show up routinely in our festive songs they show up in our movies Perhaps if you have your Christmas decorations up in your house, you will see words associated with these concepts on display in your home. If you've already begun to wrap Christmas presents for the year, perhaps you have some wrapping paper that has these concepts uh, plastered all over it. Everywhere we turn for the next few weeks, we are going to see the emphasis on concepts like joy, hope, love, faith, Peace. And we're talking culturally here. I'm not just talking about the church. You can walk into the stores. You can uh, go to the mall. You can drive down the roads. You can see the ads on television, whatever it is that you're doing. And you're going to see an emphasis on these things that really, for the most part, are just reserved for uh, religious talk the rest of the year, isn't it? Uh, But it's different this time of year. And we're going to see it emphasized everywhere. And of course, these are totally abstract ideas on their own and they're interpreted in a variety of ways, uh, culturally speaking. So that if you were to go to uh, Target or some other uh, retail location today looking for Christmas presents, you're gonna see uh, probably on the signage and on the banners that they have in their store, uh, things like joy, it may even just be that word, joy, right? And what is the messaging that comes along with that? You will have great joy this Christmas season if you buy your Christmas presents from us. That's where you will have your joy this year, right? Or maybe shopping's not your thing. Maybe your thing is to veg out on the couch and turn on uh, the Hallmark Channel or uh, uh, Netflix or something like that. And what, what is it? what's the messaging that comes across? Love, generally, isn't it? Love is the word that we see, Christmas love, a Christmas prince, a Christmas tree, a Christmas everything, and and it's all basically the same story, right? And the messaging is the same. The messaging is, you will experience love this Christmas season if you leave your job in the big city, and you go back to your small hometown for the season, and you happen to run into that guy that you knew in elementary school who turned into this successful hunk, and if you will just do that, you will have love this Christmas season, right? And we could go on and on with that, can't we? Everyone is telling us that we can have joy and hope and love and peace this Christmas season, but they all have different answers for what those things mean and for how they can actually be obtained. Well, what's fascinating is that no, no matter how hard our secular world works to separate the season from religious thought, it can't help but borrow from Christian worldviews when using these categories. That's where they come from. Thoughts of peace, love, hope, and joy, those are distinctly biblical ideas that everyone wants to achieve so long as they can do it their way rather than God's way. It's interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating, really. We want everything that God offers. We just don't want to achieve it God's way. We want to be able to get at it our way. We want to decide what love means and how we can get it. But we at least want the love. So on and so forth as, as the concepts go. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus alone is the fulfillment of these things that we all long so deeply to experience if you really do want hope and peace and joy and love this christmas you're only going to find it in christ it's the only place the only person where you can really genuinely find these things and this morning we're going to turn our attention to the birth of jesus as the advent of peace i'm not going to do very thorough expositions through this we're going to bounce around so i want you to keep your bibles handy Um, and and prepared to turn to a few places. But we're going to start here in Luke chapter 2. Are you there? Luke chapter 2. Let's read a a larger portion of the chapter here, starting at verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We're going to come back to that verse on Christmas Eve, but maybe take the month, if, if you don't like to do a lot of reading, just read that verse every day. Just meditate on that verse every day. There is so much packed into just that little phrase. Unto is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Four major, major elements of biblical truth are represented just in that one announcement. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Peace. Peace is what we want to focus on here. Christmas is often regarded as a season that brings peace and just like with those other concepts in the coming days, we're going to all be instructed in various ways to pursue peace, especially with those that we've spent much of the year warring with. That's what's funny about it, isn't it? Whatever you're going to do for most of the year, at least at Christmas, set those things aside and be at peace with one another. You're going to hear uh, as if we're not hearing a lot of it already, but you're going to hear even stronger calls in the next couple of weeks in the, underneath the uh, a banner of Christmas spirit that, that for at least Christmas, we want the fighting in Gaza to cease, at, at least for Christmas. And because of Christmas, we want the war in Ukraine to pause, at least for Christmas. We want these conflicts around the world that are unfolding. There's going to be urges, stronger urges than maybe normally there are throughout other times of the year. And it's going to be under this uh, banner of peace that is associated with the Christmas season. People groups that genuinely hate each other are going to be urged a little stronger to get along. You're going to be encouraged to love your... Uh, your in-laws when you go and visit their house and just be at peace with them. All the things, we're going to be encouraged on those things. And those are good things. That's, those are not things that we should be, uh, have a problem with. But this message of peace, noble as it is, really ultimately and annually is fruitless. It's fruitless because it has no ground or effective mechanism for actually making peace. That's the problem it's so abstract. We're just simply told to look deep within ourselves, and there we'll find the strength to do these things. But the problem is, is when we begin to be so introspective, when we look so deep down within ourselves, what we find, what we come to the end of, is the very sin, the very hurt that we've experienced that caused all the turmoil to begin with. It's very backward reasoning. It's it's hey, it's Christmas, look inside yourself so that you can find the strength to be at peace. But then when you really begin to think about it, you think, well, all I can think about is the problems that has made me that has robbed me of peace. How is it that I can find in myself some mechanism for actually making peace now? And then the Christmas season really just becomes a massive lie. It's a facade. That renders displays of peace utterly superficial. The message is the basic equivalent of the exhausted parent saying to their kids, would you please, for 30 minutes, pretend to like each other so we can have a decent meal as a family, right? That's basically what the messaging comes down to. We get out of all the ads. It's gonna be basically it's our mom saying, listen, would you just pretend to like each other so we can enjoy some stories and some cookies and some hot chocolate for a little while? Isn't none of it's real? It's perhaps spirit lifting to some extent, but it's not real. It's fruitless, it's not lasting. It's not true peace. It's deferred war. There's also a kind of messaging this time of year every year that seeks to blend the secular notions of peace with the religious and sacred hopes of peace, hoping that it might achieve a better result. That if we can just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and bring it together, it will finally work. Combines elements of religion and culture to offer something everyone longs to experience, but then it still misses the mark. What it ends up doing is actually muddying the waters even more. Can I give you an example? Maybe a facetious example, but an example nonetheless. You like Gene Autry? 1947, Gene Autry publishes and records for the first time these lyrics. Peace on earth will come to all if we just follow the light. So let's give thanks to the Lord above. Why? Because Santa Claus comes tonight. It's this blending notion that we're confronted with every year. It's been going on for decades where we take a little bit of the secular and we take a little bit of the sacred. We don't want to emphasize either one too much. We try to make it work together. But what it does is it muddies the waters even more. I know that's not meant to be taken so seriously, so don't come at me after the service. I'm not saying you can't sing Here Come Santa Claus. But it does actually symbolize the vast confusion that has existed in Western thought for decades. It includes an utterly vapid notion of peace on earth first. What does that even mean? Peace on earth will come to awe if we just follow the light. Because he immediately follows it up with something that's completely heinous. He says, now we're to give thanksgiving to the Lord, not because of the advent of the Christ who has come to save us from our sins, but for the advent of a storybook character who comes to bring us toys and eat all our cookies. (laughs) Do you see why this is a problem? Do you see why this kind of blending, it actually makes things worse? It teases us with thoughts of peace by at least acknowledging that God has something to do with it. But then it fails to deliver on its promise by replacing Jesus with Santa. Now, the Bible gives us a better way, a much better way. Not only does God issue genuine promises of peace, but he fully delivers on those promises through his son, Jesus Christ. We all long for this peace. The world longs for peace, even those who don't know Christ. They long for peace because God put that in us. He put that in us. He put that desire in us. And they're trying to find it in all kinds of ways. But God put a longing in us that only He can satisfy. Only He can bring this peace. And what I want to do this morning is look at three passages that help us understand the meaning of God's peace how Jesus is the provider of that peace, and then how we can actually truly receive that peace once and for all, okay? So we're going to look at what peace actually is, how Jesus is the fulfillment of it, how Jesus alone is the fulfillment of it, and how we can receive it. Number one, I want you to see the announcement of peace. The announcement of peace. This is where we come to Luke chapter 2. The angel's appearance to shepherds near Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth is such an exciting part of the Christmas story, isn't it? I like you just can't imagine what it would have been like to be on that, uh, on that hill or in those caves or wherever it was that they were near Bethlehem when all of this began to unfold. It says they were in great fear. I would imagine that's a bit of an understatement. I would have been scared to death. But this part of the story is actually hugely important. The angelic message was a plain declaration of the gospel to these lowly shepherds. It even uses gospel language. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the euangelion, evangel, good news, gospel. That's the gospel word. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The angel says. But we need to notice that the substance of this good news, of this gospel message, has everything to do with Jesus. The good news of great joy in verse 10 is equal to unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord in verse 11. That's the substance of the gospel message. He hasn't got to peace yet. That's not actually a part of the message that they deliver to the shepherds. The message to the shepherds is, the Christ has come. He is born a Savior in Bethlehem. Now, too often we can be guilty of reducing the gospel message to what really are just the benefits of the gospel, but not the substance of it. Good news of great joy is not first peace on earth good news of great joy is Christ is born. Jesus is the gospel and you can't experience any of the benefits of the gospel like peace and love and so on without Jesus. Without who he is and without what he's done for us. That's why why the notions of blending secular and, and sacred together, they don't actually work. Because in Jesus alone, we have both the ground for peace and the mechanism for peace. The actual way of achieving it and receiving it. So that if you don't have Jesus, you can't actually have peace. At least not the peace that we're referring to here. And we're going to return to this text on Christmas Eve. But for now, I want to draw your attention to the praise of the heavenly host in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So with the announcement of Jesus' birth in verse 10 comes the announcement of peace through Jesus in the praise of the heavenly host in verse 14. So if you follow the progression of the text here, it becomes clear that the result of Christ's advent, of his coming, is God's glory in making peace with his people. Do you see that in the praise? The angel appears and he says, listen, the Christ has come. He's in Bethlehem. Go see him. And then all of a sudden, there's all of these angels and they're praising God, not the shepherds. not speaking to the shepherds. They're praising God. And they're saying, this is bringing God glory, glory to God in the highest because this Savior has come. And because he has come, he has brought peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased to give it. You see the progression. But it's essential that we understand what this peace actually means again cultural notions of peace typically have to do with getting along with other people but that's not the kind of peace that the gospel has in view it's not the kind of peace that the gospel promises actually if we think of this announcement as the end of wars and the end of interpersonal disputes listen if that's what this is then the gospel has failed it has not delivered. And it doesn't take you long to figure that out. How I many of you had a fight with somebody in your house before you even came this morning? Interpersonal disputes, they still happen. Wars, they're getting worse and worse. More prevalent. If that's what the angels had in mind in this announcement, then the gospel has failed and we are lost. The Bible's not promised that kind of peace in relation to the first advent of the Christ at least. Jesus himself said that there would continue to be conflict among people that nations would continue in some cases to be at war because of him even Here is words from Matthew chapter 10 Jesus himself says do not think that i have come to bring peace to earth i have not come to bring peace he says but a sword for i have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are strong words from the Savior. And they are immersed in conflict. They're immersed in war and in problems. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue peace with these people. Jesus' point is that even the gospel brings division and conflict. The gospel doesn't promise the kind of peace that we're so used to hearing about this time of year. So then what does this peace actually mean? Are we to understand that Jesus' teaching is in contradiction with the angelic announcement at his birth? No, because they're not referring to the same kind of peace. The peace associated with the advent of Christ and that is proclaimed in the praise of the heavenly host is not peace with your wife. It is peace with God. That's the peace that is now promised. Peace with your creator. The primary benefit of peace in the incarnation of Jesus is not that you will get along better with those in your family and in your workplace, but that you might be reconciled to God and escape his eternal wrath. You see, the world gets this completely backward, but what's good, what good is it if we, we get along with every human being on the planet, but we're an enemy of God? The advent of the Christ isn't about bringing peace among men, though it does get there eventually. The advent of the Christ is about bringing peace between man and God, their creator. Reconciliation and restoration together in eternity. And the reality of our standing before God and His promise to provide a way for peace takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship and peace with God until the day that they disobeyed Him. Think about what happened on that day. On that day, they were expelled from the garden, the place, the paradise, the place where God had set them. They are expelled from that. They... Received the curses that came along with their sin. They lost fellowship with their creator. And though graciously allowed to live a long life, they were then destined for death. That was the ultimate consequence. Death. You see, God's holiness, it demands judgment. But even amid the judgment, He promised that He would provide a means of peace and reconciliation once again. We call it the proto-evangelion. Genesis 3.15. In the curse of the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It doesn't say much, at least in that verse, doesn't say much about how this is going to happen, but it's the start. God, even in the midst of the opening judgment, gives an opening promise. One day he will send one who will bring peace who will reconcile us back to our creator and then through the scriptures god gives us all these pictures and promises of what this messiah savior would be and what he would do and it all has to do with making an atonement for our sins all of it it has to do with atonement The advent of Christ means the advent of peace with God. Sinners reconciled to their creator by grace. The praise of the heavenly host announced that God's promised peace was now being fulfilled in quote, a child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So I think Gene Autry had it wrong. Peace on earth is an experience because Santa Claus is coming to town. Peace on earth is experienced because a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born this day in the city of David. And the peace he brings is peace with God himself. That's amazing to consider. You just let that marinate on your mind a while. This peace, it restores me to my heavenly Father. It's a peace that escapes eternal hell. It's a peace that takes the judgment that I deserve and puts it on someone else so that I can be at peace, a child of God. That's the peace that's promised in the gospel. That's the announcement of it. Number two, let's look at the provision of peace. The provision of peace. And for this, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, would you just flip there quickly? Colossians chapter 1. It's one thing to acknowledge that peace with God comes only through the advent of the Christ, but how exactly does Jesus provide and secure this peace? Let's first say how he doesn't supply this peace. It's not simply by virtue of his existence, it didn't only require his coming, it wasn't just the fact that he came. That's not enough. We're not given peace with God simply because he was born. And the Bible nowhere teaches that the entire universe is reconciled to God on the grounds of Christ's goodness and virtue. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. That's universalism. That's not what the Bible teaches. Even the angelic message itself declares that this peace was limited to those with whom God is pleased to give it. So it's not simply by the existence of Jesus that suddenly... Everyone is just okay, and everyone's at peace. Okay? Neither does Jesus provide this peace by setting a moral example by which we might earn our way back to God. It doesn't work like that either. It's not that God sends his son to do some things So that if we do some things ourselves will be made acceptable It's not that he sends jesus to do like a percentage of it And then if we cover our own percentage here, then okay He's going to give us a pass and 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 things are going to be done. That's that's not how this works The prevailing thought of the day is that if there is a god and if he's good Then he will reward those who do their best and try their hardest But Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter seven that there will be many people who stand before him in judgment having lived exceptionally moral lives and still be condemned to eternal hell. So it's not just about providing a moral example so that if we live faithfully and morally and ethically, we'll make it. No. Colossians chapter one. Look with me at verse 19. I know we're parachuting into this text, but hang with me. For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, that's peace with God, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now there's enough here for two or three sermons. Let me just give you a snippet of it here, okay? Three simple things about this text that refers to Jesus as the provider of peace and how he's provided it. Number one, our peace comes through his cross. Our peace comes through his cross. God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with God is announced at the birth of Christ, but it is provided and secured at the death of Christ. We are not made at peace with God simply because Christ exists and was born. We are made at peace with God because Christ died in our place. Earlier, I mentioned the promises and pictures in the Scripture regarding the person and work of the Messiah that God had given us so that we would know what to look for. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things not the least of which is the fulfillment of the picture we see in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Year after year, they brought their lambs and goats and bulls and pigeons and all the things that God had instructed them to give, and they sacrificed them year after year after year, but they had to keep coming and doing it again because none of it actually worked. None of it was sufficient to provide atonement. And they did it over and over and over, God getting them to look forward that one day a sacrifice would come, a once and for all sacrifice that would never have to be repeated. And then we get to the New Testament and we see all that the Bible has to say about Jesus and we find that what Jesus is, is the perfect spotless Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. It's only through the atoning blood of His cross that sinners can be reconciled to the Holy God. Why was Jesus born? Jesus was literally born to die. That's why He came. To die. Because it's only in His death that we can have life and peace and be reconciled to God. Our peace comes through His cross. Number two, our peace comes through his person. Our peace comes through his person. Not just anyone could make a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath for our sins. It wouldn't work. We all have sin, which means our death is its own punishment. But Jesus had no sin. So his death is not a payment for his own wrongdoing. It must be for someone else's wrongdoing. It's a substitution. It took a perfect, sinless sacrifice to appease God and bring us peace. So what is it about Jesus's cross that made His sacrifice efficacious for us? It's who He is. It's His person. We can be reconciled to God through Jesus because, as Paul says in verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus not only bears the glory of God, but all that God is dwells in him, which is to say that Jesus is truly God. He's not a representative of God. He is God. God in flesh. That's the wonder of the incarnation, isn't it? God has become man to save us from our sins. Matt Boswell and Matt Papa have just recently released a new Christmas song called In the Fullness of Time. It's a beautiful song. You should go and listen to it. At the very end of the song, they take that old hymn that we often sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and they add a verse to it, and it's so wonderful. It fits uh, for, for Christmas. Holy, Holy, Holy... In a manger lowly, Christ the Son, now born as man, in our humanity, veiled in flesh in our humanity. Kingdoms bow before him, heaven and earth endure him. And I love this phrase, God here in person. God here in person. You know how this song goes in the other verses? God in three persons. Now he says, God here in person, on earth, in person, God himself, that's who Jesus is. That's why any of this matters. That's why Paul can write to the Colossians and say that God was pleased to use Jesus to make peace with us through the blood of his cross. It was only possible because of what he said first, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He is God, therefore He's sinless and perfect. Therefore, God Himself has become the atonement for us. Now that's real peace. Real peace is not an olive branch between two people who just decide to now get along. Real, eternal peace is the one who has been wronged, giving Himself for the ones who have done the wrong that's what God has done and it's all through the scriptures we see it everywhere maybe most notably in John chapter 1 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth our peace comes through his cross but that's only possible because our peace comes through his person who he is thirdly our peace comes through his grace comes through his grace. Look back at the verses Colossians 1. Notice the description given for sinners here. I think it's verse 21. What does it say? We were once alienated, hostile in mind that is hostile toward God in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who we are as sinners. Now notice what he says about us at the end of the verse 22. That we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. That's quite the shift, isn't it? Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now we're presented by Jesus, holy and blameless and above reproach before God. It's a complete 180. And here's a point. Our holiness does not come before being reconciled to God, but after. Do you see that? This is who we were, but now Christ has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, he's reconciled us, so that he may present us holy and blameless and above reproach, what is that all about? It's grace, it's grace. We are not made at peace because we finally got stuff together. Because we develop this holiness and this goodness and this above reproach where God was finally willing to unpinch His nose and give us a pass. No, that comes after we've made peace or He's made peace. Isn't that amazing? Peace with God is not something that we can achieve. So stop trying to earn it. You don't have to do that. It won't work anyways. It's given to us freely by God's grace Through Jesus Christ. And it's only after we've been reconciled to God that Jesus begins His work of sanctification, making us holy and presentable to God. And even then, it's not on the basis of our righteousness that He presents us holy. It's on the basis of His own righteousness that He presents us holy. Isn't that amazing? So what is this piece, actually, that, that the gospel promises? It's peace with God first and foremost, right? Okay, that's, that's really our biggest need. Other peace can come, but it's only going to come after we're made at peace with God. Well, how is it actually secured? Well, Jesus fulfills it through the cross and atonement. Thirdly, how can we receive it? If that's how it's been secured for us, And if we can't earn it, how do we actually receive it? That's the third thing, the receiving of peace. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're just going to look at the first verse. Romans chapter 5. We read this all the time in our prayers of confession. And it's worth doing again here. We've seen that the promised peace of God through Christ is not universally applied. Okay, we got that. Check. Check. We've also noted that it's not something we can earn by living up to a particular moral standard. Okay, we got that. Check. So how exactly is this piece good news then? Because it seems impossible to actually get. How can it be received? Well, the answer is so simple that it almost sounds too good to be true. That's the thing. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good enough to read again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is not something you earn by what you do. It is something you receive by faith in what Jesus has already done. Isn't that amazing? This verse makes it abundantly clear. Peace with God through the cross of Christ is received by faith. Sinners are declared righteous, that's the meaning of the word justified. Sinners are declared righteous by trusting in the person and work of Jesus, the righteous one. That's God's plan not for us to earn our way, but to see that Jesus did everything that we couldn't do and to trust Him now to reconcile us to the Father. But this faith, it's not mere belief. It's not simply intellectual agreement. Saving faith trusts so fully in the finished work of Christ that it abandons all other pursuits. It abandons all sin and it joyfully submits to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's saving faith. It's not just going to your Sunday school class and just saying, okay, that sounds good. I guess I'll be a Christian. No, it's leaving everything else, trusting so fully in the person and work of Jesus that you leave every other religious pursuit, you turn away from every sin you've ever committed, and you follow him joyfully as Lord and Savior of your life. It's an act of faith produced by God's Spirit who draws the sinner, convicts the sinner of their sin, and then transforms the sinner from the inside out. It's what Jesus said in John 3 is called being born again. I want to ask you, have you been born again? Are you actually trusting fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation? Have you submitted all of your life to his lordship? If not, he invites you to do it now. Jesus extends his invitation, Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do I receive this peace? He says, just come to me. Just come to me and I'll give it to you. Come to me. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Think about that in regards to peace. Not only is he saying, I have made peace with you, but that peace isn't ever going to be taken away again. Why? Because it's secured by an effective mechanism. The cross. The perfect, sinless Son of God. Sacrifice for your sin. It's all paid for. Not just the things you've done, but every sin you'll ever commit in your whole life. Covered by the blood of his cross. And he says, you come to me and I'll give you rest and peace and that will never be taken away again. How do we receive this peace? By faith. Come to Jesus. Believe him. Don't wait another moment. Well, Christmas really is a season of peace. I hope that I I didn't convolute that too much earlier. But it's only because of Jesus that it's a season of peace. He's the grounds for our peace. And his cross is the mechanism that's made peace possible. And because of our peace with God, now we can actually genuinely pursue peace with others. We don't do that in the Christmas spirit, but in the power of the Holy Spirit as he renews us day by day. So this Advent season, As a church, let's rejoice in the peace Jesus has provided and let's take that message of true peace to the world around us.